Who here would like to see God? Who here would like to see God? Now, some of you say, well, John, when? Like, what are you talking about here? I'm really talking about receiving a gaze of the glory of God. That you would, you would be able to have a fresh encounter with God and, and you get to see God work in your life, that you get to see God in everything that you and I do. I guess it really begs the question, are you ready to see God? I mean, are you calling down, like, Lord, would you come today? Would Jesus come back? Are you ready to see him? Are you eager to see him? Some of you who are Bible scholars would, um, would say, well, John, um, now I need to just take a pause and, and I need to think about really seeing God because everyone who saw God in the Bible fell as dead men, Right? Um, turning your Bibles to Exodus 33, verses 19 through 23. And here's Moses. Like, Moses is way up in what we would call the, the rankings of, of the most godly, wouldn't we? He was considered at one time the most humble man on earth. And he had a deep desire to see God. And in Exodus 33... Verses uh, 19 through 23, I love his attitude. And this, would this be true of temple? Would this be true of God's people today in our country? But we, we see what, what uh, Moses' his whole attitude was when they were about to go into the promised land. And in verse 19, um, I'll, I'll actually start in verse 17. Um, Actually, I'll start in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Like, this is a great prayer, right? He really wants God's favor. He wants to, to know God more. And he said, and then the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Like, that should be the start of our day and everywhere we go. Lord, if you're not going to go with me, I know that you're everywhere, but if I don't have your blessing, your favor, I don't want to take one more step. i got to get this right with you first. And then verse 16 says, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God knows you by name. Wow. Verse 18 says, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. Did you catch that? You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by 
me where you shall stand on the rock and where my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. That's where we get that, that hymn from, the name of that hymn, the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. To see the face of God would mean certain death. Because we are sinful, right? In fact, the hymn writer, the 19th century hymn writer, that great hymn, Holy, 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 the second verse uh, really echoes this truth. It says, though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy what? Glory shall not see, right? Now you might think, well, this is just Old Testament. It isn't just Old Testament. In fact, look to the very last book in the Bible and um, look at the Apostle John. The Apostle John uh, writes, now, the Apostle John was the one who uh, loved Jesus, and Jesus loved him. We see that he leaned on Jesus. Uh, he was very close. We, would, we could all agree that John, the Apostle John was very close to Jesus. But look what happens in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And I'll start in verse 12, but I really want you to focus on 13 through 16. Verse 12 says, this is John writing, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, those lampstands are Christ and the churches, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. We don't see any effeminate Jesus here, do we? His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That is the picture of Jesus. When we go to heaven, that is what we are going to see. Isn't that going to be glorious? And what is the response of John when he sees this? This is the beloved, the beloved disciple of Jesus. Verse 17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though what? Dead. Like, I, I got to go low. I got to get to the dust right away because... God is God, and I am man, and I was created from dust. So are you getting the picture when we all, most of us, I think, raise their hand, we want to see God, but to see God is to be made very low because God is so holy. Seeing God produces what theologian Rudolf Otto calls the mysterium tremendum. Can you say that? Mysterium tremendum. It's a Latin term. And um, let, me, let me give you kind of a long quote um, that we uh, see up here as he describes it. The mysterium tremendum is the feeling that comes sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. 
or it may burst in sudden eruption up from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions or lead to the strangest excitements, to intoxicated frenzy, to transport and to ecstasy. It has its wild and demonic forms and can sink into an almost grisly horror and shuddering. It has its crude, barbaric antecedents and early manifestations. And again, it may be developed into something beautiful and pure and glorious. And it became the hushed and trembling and speech humility. Here we have a terror fraught with an inward shuddering, such as not even the most menacing and overpowering created thing can instill. See, Mysterium Tremendum can be defined as you want to see God, but you are afraid of God at the same time. One of the times I experienced Mysterium Tremendum was when I was turkey hunting. And uh, I went out turkey hunting, and, and I got out early in my blind and um, before dark, and, or before, before the sun rose, and, um, uh, you know, hunted. And then I came, came back, and I was walking through the woods. And you know what I looked down and I saw? I saw fresh bear tracks. Now, I really like seeing wildlife. Like, I kind of wanted to see a bear. But I didn't want to see a bear that close. Does that make sense? In the sense, I want to see Jesus, but do I really want to see him? Because just like John, just like Moses, you start to feel the guilt and the shame, the fact that this, you, you live in this body of, of sin and death. And so as we we think about this whole question of seeing God, we need to understand that how, essentially the question, how can we see God in his holiness produce really a happiness in us? Do we really want to see God? And I think that there's a lot of people struggling with that. I don't really want to go to heaven because some people think it's boring. Some people think, wow, could I really stand in the presence of this holy God? Let me give you an encouragement tonight that Jesus gives us. It's from the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, again, are how we are to be made divinely happy. They, they are the values of the kingdom of, of Jesus. They are the, the blessings, the eight blessings that Jesus gives us. And we've, we've walked through a number of them. First of all, the blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt before, because the promise is, is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're spiritually bankrupt, you actually become very rich. And then there's blessed are those who mourn. If you mourn now, you won't mourn later. You will be comforted. You recognize a mourning over your sin, over death, and you'll turn to God. The God is the only one who comforts, the God of all comfort. Then there's the blessed are the meek. Now, meek doesn't mean weak. Again, mean, meek means to be, have power under control, to recognize who God is. And we know that Jesus was meek. And it says the meek shall inherit the earth. How many times have we seen the big dogs, the ones who are most powerful, they get knocked off, the alphas get knocked off, but those who are meek continue on. And then we studied in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For those who are, are really hungry, have a spiritual appetite for God, you will find your satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. You will feast on Him. 
And then last week, Pastor Dan talked about blessed are the merciful. And the truth is and the promise is for they shall be, they shall receive mercy. I mean, wow, that would be, just starting there would be great in our families, in our friends, in our, in our workplaces. If we just said, boy, I just am going to, to show a lot of mercy today. I'm going to show a lot of mercy. Then Jesus promises there will be mercy that, you'll re- that you will receive. And so finally, um, tonight, we're really at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for what? They shall see God. And so that really is where I'm getting this whole question of, do you want to see God? Well, it requires a pure heart. It requires a pure pure heart. See, if I could summarize it this way, you can see God happily if you have a pure heart. You don't have to fear anymore about seeing God, but you can see God happily if you have a pure heart. And I want to add two more words to that through Jesus. Through Jesus. First John 4.18 emphasizes that perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And so when Jesus took on your punishment, you no longer have to fear him. He can give you that pure heart. I think a lot about how my dad has seen Jesus and how God gave him a pure heart. It wasn't something that my dad earned. It wasn't because he studied the Bible so much. It wasn't that he went to church and all those things. It was because he saw the need for his Savior to save him, to give him a pure heart. It's something that God wants to give you today. If you walked in here today and you felt like, man, John, I just don't have a pure heart. I've been looking at things. I've been, I've been giving my heart to other things other than God. God wants to give you that pure heart so that you can see his awesome son. A happy heart is a pure heart. And I want to tell you today that only Jesus gives that pure heart. Guilt, shame, and regret are essentially the clogged arteries. That guilt, that shame, regret in your life, that clogs your arteries and keeps you from seeing Jesus. causes us to have spiritual heart attacks. But just like our beloved Graham, who is a walking miracle, who they put stints in so that on the very day that my dad is having his funeral, you're having a heart attack, and we thought, maybe you're going to go see Jesus alongside my dad. They go rush to St. Mary's and put stints in, and you're with us today. Jesus can put stints in our lives. He can unclog all of those things in our lives with his blood. Jesus' spiritual blood is a transfusion that cleans us up and gives us hope. So, what does it mean to have a pure heart? I've thought a lot about that. You might say, well, John, what does it really mean to have a pure heart? Well, the scholars um, vary. I'm going to give you a few definitions, but I I think there's pretty much consensus. It means single-mindedness, a single-mindedness of heart. Um, There's no duplicity. It goes beyond just being sincere, because as some have said, you can be sincerely wrong. It it means that you have a, a singular focus on Jesus. A singular focus on Jesus, 
William Barclay says it this way. It means unmixed, unadulterated, unalloyed. We could put it this way. We have a heart of gold. You ever heard that? This person has a heart of gold. We often hear something like that maybe at a funeral. I thought about where does that phrase, the heart of gold, come from? Well, the first time we, we discovered in written language is probably, this is not a surprise to you, it's actually in Shakespeare. It's in Henry V. And um, what happened in, in Henry V is that the king uh, was really concerned about his, his army. His army was, um, was now being besieged and was being surrounded by, by the French so Henry V is a, about an English king, and it's being, his army is being surrounded by the French. And so the king disguises himself, and he goes and he talks and tries to find out what the morale is around his soldiers. But he also wants to find out what, what his soldiers really thought of him, because if he's going to lead in, them into battle, he needs to know whether it's going to be one of these things where he runs ahead and everyone takes one step back, right? And so King Henry V... He goes, what do you think? He asks a guy named Pistol in Shakespeare's Henry V. He asks a guy named Pistol, what, what, do, you, uh, what do you know about this king? Is he, is he a man of good character? And so I quote um, Pistol by saying, the king's bawcock, which means a fine fellow. Okay, we don't use that word anymore. A heart of gold. The king has a heart of gold. And that's the first time we, we find this phrase in written lit literature, this heart of gold. We need such a heart of gold. Uh, to summarize, to be pure in heart is to have an uncontaminated, locked-down focus on God. And this makes sense because logically, if we have that laser focus on Jesus, then we'll find him. Isn't that what Jesus says? We don't have to be like... See, the, Jesus is not like King Henry V, who had to disguise himself fully. He now has made himself known to us. And if we'll seek him, we'll find him. That's what actually Jesus promises later on in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, that if you seek, you will find. In fact, if you want to see Jesus, you will guaranteed see him you will guaranteed see him. If tonight you're like, John, I really want to see Jesus, you will see him. And not just in judgment. You'll see him because that's part of these first steps of finding that pure heart. And this is about the only time that the advice to follow your heart is really a good one. Why? Because our hearts aren't pure. We struggle with our hearts, don't we? We don't usually want to see Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus taught later on in Matthew chapter 15? Look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. And, and I think it's up on the screen too. You can look at your own hard copy of God's word. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. This is what Jesus says. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murdery, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. And then verse 20 says, these are what defile a person. It's not what you eat, but these are the things. It's out of our hearts. 
it isn't just lust and porn addictions that will keep us from seeing Jesus, but it's all sorts of impurities. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the, the great pastors of the last century who was also a doctor, said this, one of the best definitions of purity is given in Psalm 86, verse 11, unite my heart to fear thy name. But the problem, as Neil Young discovered in the 1972 song, some of you might remember this song, I've been a miner for a heart of gold. It's these expressions that I never give that keeps me searching for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old, right? Neil Young couldn't find the heart of gold. You can keep searching and mining for a heart of gold and never find it because all our hearts fail us. And here's where I believe that the physical realm gives us pointers to the spiritual realm. The number one leading cause of death in the United States is heart disease. The number two cause, the number two leading cause of death in Canada is heart disease. Cancer is number one here in Canada. Maybe our physical hearts here in our country, in the North America, are mirroring what's really going on in our spiritual hearts, in the heart of the nation. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, right? And desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? Right? Even in marriage, you say, I really want to know this person's heart. And you get to know their heart, but there's still parts of it you don't know. We all suffer from spiritual heart disease. But here's some really awesome news. Jesus is the cardiologist. You need to fix your broken heart. How? How does Jesus break? How does Jesus uh, fix our broken hearts? Well, Jesus was the only one who had a pure heart. He's the only one whose heart was not deceitful above all things and desperately sick. He never sinned. Out of his heart never spew evil thoughts or sexual morality or, or theft or false witness or slander. Jesus' heart actually produced the fruit of the Spirit instead. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are what what really were produced from Jesus' heart. And yet, the astounding thing is this. Jesus also suffered from a broken heart. He loved us so much. My friends, as we enter into communion, we are actually trying to see God. And the only way to see God is this, to get a heart transplant. This is exactly what God promises. And here's the best part. You don't have to stand in line. You don't have to wait months, years to get a heart transplant today, a spiritual heart transplant. You can have it today. Look what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Jesus in the Beatitudes is echoing back to this awesome passage. God's promise, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Who's that? What's that new spirit? the Holy Spirit, God himself, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey 
my rules. If you want to see God work, and more importantly, see God in the future, you must ask for a transplant through Jesus. Ask God to give you a new heart that will unclog the arteries through forgiveness. And then you can ha see God happily if you have a pure heart through Jesus. I mean, even the food of the Lord's Supper, this has, this has heaven's seal of approval on it. Heaven's heart seal of approval because it helps us to remember as we come to the table and we seek forgiveness that this unclogs all of, the, all of the arteries and all the junk that's been building up in our hearts and our minds as we seek God and we seek each other. That's why it represents Jesus' body and his blood. So get a new heart today so that your hearts can beat in unison and communion with God. As I conclude, before we go to the Lord's table, I want to read a little longer section of a, an amazing story I read. Someone lent me this book, Appointments from, with Heaven. It's written by a Christian doctor. Who remembers Stephen Curtis Chapman um, and when, um, when their daughter was run over? Remember that? Well, the author of this book is are the Chapman's best friend and, and also their doctor there in Tennessee. And some of, some of the stories he tells is anecdotal, but it's been really helpful these last couple weeks to me. And I'll just read this to you. He, he says, he was in the ER and he had finished with his last patient and no one else remained in the emergency room. So I'd gone back to the on-call room to put my feet up and relax. And I wasn't there more than five minutes when the nurse called. Can you come back down? CPR in progress. The ambulance will be here in five minutes. I jumped up and headed down to the ER to make sure I was prepped. I barely put on my mask and gloves by the time the ambulance arrived and the team was in place and ready to receive the patient. The gurney rolled through the doors. White female, 79 years, collapsed at home. 9-11 called. She was intubated on site and IV placed. She had an acetole. I think I said that right. Is that right? Astistole. Thank you very much, Pat. On the monitor. However, we continued CPR and route since we were so close. Asystole was a dire form of cardiac arrest. The heart completely stops beating and no electrical activity can be detected, detected on the monitor. It is usually a serious and life-ending heart attack. Betty Sue hadn't responded to any of the EMT's initial interventions. The survival rate for her age and lack of response was less than 1%. Things didn't look good, but a 1% chance was better than no chance at all. We moved her into the two-bed emergency room to see what we could do. The EMTs had been doing mass breathing, so we moved her from their portable machine to our larger one. No activity registered on the monitor. Continued CPR, push the epi. Still nothing. One amp of bicarb, continued CPR, nothing. Charge the paddles. We shocked her heart, still nothing. The ambulance attendant poked his head in the room and said, her husband William is outside. We're busy working on Betty Sue. Tell him I'll be out when I can talk to him. It will probably be a few minutes. I don't think you understand, the EMT said. She called us for him. William is the one who had a heart attack first. He's in the hall, and we're doing CPR on him. What? I looked up in time to see my nurse's jaw drop. The EMT explained that the husband had collapsed at home and the wife had called 911. 911, sorry. 
And by the time the ambulance arrived, William and Betty Sue were both lying on the floor. We'll bring him in and put him in cot too, I said. Running two codes at once in our tiny ER was unprecedented. I continued to work on Betty Sue while the EMTs and nurses set up William in the adjoining bed. I strongly sensed God's presence inside the ER. I felt his warmth as intensely as I ever felt it. The divine sense calmed me as I felt the veil parting for one or both of these precious souls. Their children are on the way and should be here in five minutes, the nurse said. Continue CPR on both patients until they arrive. Handling one code was challenging enough, but trying to keep up with two at the same time was impossible without God's intervention. Thankfully, I felt him directing my attention between the two patients and keeping me focused as I supervised the nurses. Once William was hooked up uh, to this monitor, I could see that his heart was, wasn't registering any activity either. Like his wife, he was flatlined. I intubated him and we started mechanical breathing. Still no signs of heart activity. Let's try to shock him. I didn't think that shocking would work any better than it had with Betty Sue, but I had to do something for the adult children who were about to learn that they'd lost both parents within minutes of each other. Charge the paddles! I turned to look at Betty Sue's monitor one last time before I shocked William, but as soon as I turned toward her bed, her nurse said something that made me turn right back. Doctor, there's something happening here. She pointed to the monitor where it showed a hint of activity. Then, even before we could shock his heart. We saw a single heartbeat. Blip. Hold the paddles, I said. I think we're getting a pulse. He's coming back. Then there was another blip. Only this second blip wasn't from William's monitor. It came from somewhere behind me. I turned to see what was happening and I re realized it was on the wife's monitor. Blip. A second beat on William's monitor. Blip. Another beat on Betty Sue's monitor. Blip, blip, went William's monitor. And Betty Sue's echoed with a blip, blip, blip. It was like a game of ping pong. <laughs> I turned my head to watch each volley of heartbeats as they registered on both patients' monitors. Without intervention, William's heart had begun to beat regularly, and then his wife's followed. And soon the two heartbeats were beating in synchronized rhythm. It was the most unusual thing I'd ever seen. It nearly took my breath away. The activity in the room, which had been so busy and chaotic while they were trying to run codes, had ceased. And all the medical professionals were speeches as we stood and on, listened to the monitors, amplifying the sounds of two hearts beating in unison. It was one of the most marvelous miracles I'd ever witnessed. But the couple wasn't out of the woods yet. Both patients were intubated and had heartbeats and blood pressure, but they were still unconscious. I would need to send them to Nashville for further care by a cardiologist. And when their four children arrived, I told them what had happened. The kids were amazed, but they didn't seem surprised. They told us that their mom and dad had, spent, had not spent a night apart in 60 years. Their parents' marriage was obviously a source of pride in the family. I explained that we would need to transfer them to the ICU in Nashville, that since they were in a frail state, anything could happen. The kids agreed that their parents were obviously in God's hands and that he hasn't, wasn't finished with them yet, but they also agreed to a DNR. That means do not resuscitate. If their parents left again, the kids didn't want extraordinary means used to try to bring them back. William and Betty Sue left Ashland City in separate ambulances. Their kids followed behind in cars. I called the Nashville Hospital and spoke to the cardiologist on call and Dr. Peter Scully, who was originally from Australia. And I updated him on the medical situation of the two patients. And I also described what happened in the ER. He was intrigued. I've heard of a case similar to this in the Outback, but that was years ago. 
Dr. Scully promised to keep me updated on their progress. Days later, I received a phone call. I have an interesting story to tell you about your patients, Dr. Scully said. They arrived in the ER and I had some conversation with the kids and that you did. I had the same conversation with the kids that you did. They wanted the ventilators kept in to help them breathe, but they decided they didn't want any further heroics. If the heart stopped, we weren't supposed to start them again. I admitted both patients to put them in separate rooms in the same cardiac unit. Nothing he said up to this point surprised me, but Dr. Scully wasn't finished. This morning during rounds, I was standing at William's bed when his monitor flatlined. Since we weren't going to resuscitate him, I called time of death and then went down to the hall uh, to the nurse's station to write discharge to a funeral home in his chart. While I was writing, I happened to look up at the monitors in front of me and I noticed Betty Sue's. While I was watching, hers flatlined too. Two hearts beat in unison and two hearts went to see Jesus at the same time. In Romans chapter 6, it talks about the fact that we have died with Christ. And so, in, in, in the truest sense of the word, when we have this heart transplant, our heart beats for all that is good in this world that, that God loves. But it also communicates that, essentially, like we have at the Lord's Supper, that when Christ died, we died too. We died to our sinful nature. And we now have a pure heart before him. A heart that lives forever with God. Isn't that a great truth? Blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They shall see God.